Let me tell you a quick story about um, kind of my first lesson of why re- I learned responding is so important. Why how my how my response has has the, has consequences. Why why my response um, is why responding is important and why it's just integral to our lessons in life. Um, one time when I was a kid, my I, I was obsessed with Christmas decorations and I remember my dad let me decorate my room to the best that I wanted. He gave me a budget to buy stuff at at, at Walmart and you know I had lights, I had Santas everywhere. Um, I was just obsessed with decorating for Christmas as a kid. Um, and it works out well because now my wife is also obsessed with decorating for Christmas, so it's amazing. Um, but one day, as a family, we were driving around um, looking at Christmas lights. Where we grew up, that was pretty customary. I think that that's pretty naturally or pretty widely customary in, in the United States. Um, but we drove around looking at Christmas lights, and it was really fun. I, I really enjoyed my time. We got candy canes, not chocolate. Got to sit with Santa. Got to see cool lights, good decorations. What I'm all about. We were out for a couple of hours, probably. We roll home, and we pull into the driveway, and everyone, you know, everyone's cheery and good spirits. It's Christmas. Of course, everyone's in a good mood, and even I was in a good mood. And then we were getting out of the car, and I said, oh, finally, we're home. And my dad was very upset about this. He took this as me being ungrateful for having fun Christmas traditions, as ungrateful for something that he and my stepmom at the time um, went out of their way to do for us, for us to have a, a good Christmas memory as a family, good Christmas fun, just a fun time. Um, he did this for us, and he took my response as, Ugh, finally we're home, as, oh, this kid's ungrateful. And so, because I was ungrateful for that, I was also, because of my response to the consequences that I reaped, were that I was ungrateful for everything for Christmas. And so, I had to tear down all my Christmas decorations, I had to put all my toys in the garage, this was before Christmas, so they weren't my new toys. Um, little did I know, I was just making room for what he had for me in store. But, anyway, but my, my response, whether it be true or not, of how I felt, reaped consequences that were not of my enjoyment, were not what I wanted, and didn't even really reflect how I was feeling. But our response to things in life are important. How we respond to life is important. And I would argue to say that almost all of life is shaped by our response to what, to what happens. From the time you're a baby, when you're, you're learning how to say mama and dada, it's a response to your parents constantly saying this over and over to you, and it's finally you give in, and it's like, oh, dada, you know. <laughs> or to when you're interviewing for a job, you learn to respond the, the right way to get the job that you want. Our responses have implications. Our responses reap, you know, you reap what you sow. That's kind of where that comes from. Or a response to our spouses. If, I, if me and my wife get in an argument and I say, after, or if she says to me, I don't really appreciate how you speak to me, and I say, I don't really appreciate how you speak to me, what's going to end up happening? Not a good response. If I was humble and would say, I'm sorry, I should not have spoken to you, the, the consequences are going to be much better than the, re, than the response of saying, just, just trying to be a jerk, essentially. Um, getting a job or not, like I said, interviews, interviewing, uh, formation of our personalities. As kids, we all go through some sort of, um, I, we call it trauma, but I, we don't all go through you know, something that gives us PTSD, essentially, but no parents are perfect, no one has a perfect life, things happen, and we end up having to respond to those things in some way or another, and it forms our personality. And so our response forms who we are, how we respond to life, and they always have consequences, whether, whether good or bad. And I I want to go as far as to say that it's true with our relationship with God as well. 
God acts, God is who he is, he does what he does for us, he, he exists how he exists, and how we respond to that, there are consequences. Respond rightly and we get to experience all that God has in store for us. Respond wrongly, we miss out on all that God has in store for us. All people stand somewhere and have some response to God, whether it's we reject him or accept him, we are lukewarm towards him or we are on fire for him, we have some kind of response to God. And I want to encourage you, and God isn't a riddler. He doesn't expect us to try and figure out a puzzle, uh, some confusing maze of how to respond to God. He makes it quite simple, actually. And so we are still in the book of Luke, and we're back into our regular rhythm of with Jesus. And where we're at specifically is kind of with the backdrop of all, almost all of the huge things that Jesus has done in his ministry on earth. Healings, walking on water, changing water to wine, feeding of thousands, raising, raising Lazarus back to life, world-changing teaching and confrontations with religious elite, fulfilling prophecies, and much more. Jesus did a lot. And he visited Jerusalem a couple of times, but this time he's visiting Jerusalem again, and he had spoken of this time where this is where it's all going to go down. And so our passage is labeled the triumphal entry. We're going to be in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. You don't have to pull your Bibles out, but you can if that's your preference. Uh, but we're going to read Luke 19, 28 through 44 to see what Jesus is doing and how we ought to respond. And so it says, when he had said these things, and if you're a good Bible studier, if you jump into a passage, it says, when he had said these things, you read what's good before. Before this is a parable of the ten minus. Go back on our website. Caleb preached an amazing sermon. If you have a couple hours to go listen to it. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but it, so when he had said these things, this was right after he had preached the parable of the minus. Go back and listen to, we have all of our sermons available online. Go back and listen to it, great message. Uh, but he said, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he had approached Bethphage, Bethphage, I've heard both, and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they responded, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. Okay, this is the beginning of our passage, all right? So basically, Jesus tells them, go get this colt. It's going to be there. And, if so, and if whoever owns it asks you why you're taking it, just tell them that the Lord needs it. Tell them that I need it. All right. Now, if someone would have just told me this, I would have had so many questions, so many apprehensions. Like it, it's so super simple, yet like leaves too much room for ambiguity. It would have made, would have made me uncomfortable. I would have you know thought like, how do you know there's going to be a cult? Where is this cult? Do you do you need this cult? You've been walking this whole time. Seriously, you don't have a better reason than th that you need it for me to tell them. And I, I would have had so many questions. The instruction is that the Lord needs it. And this, just one statement has huge implications for a couple reasons. And the first is that this is a prophetic, a historical prophetic statement that he's, that he's making. Like I had said earlier, Jesus came and fulfilled many, many prophecies that um, prophets and, and, and older people had uh, prophesied and predicted about uh, the king that God would send to save Jerusalem, um, to save his people. In Zechariah 9.9, which is where the prophecy comes from, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, 
humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this is a big deal because Jesus is fulfilling something. He's making a statement here. He's, he's saying that I am this guy. If you didn't already know, if you didn't already know, if you didn't already see through all the big things that I've been doing, I am the king that God has sent. So he's fulfilling a prophecy. And the disciples knew that Jesus could be trusted. They knew what he was capable of. They knew he wouldn't let them down. And the owners of the cult had probably heard of this Jesus guy, the Lord, who he's claiming to be, to establish a new rule in, Jeru- in Jerusalem, or so they thought. And it was an honor. This riding in on a colt from a local, an, un, an unridden colt, um, from a local town was actually a, a, a custom, uh, like a royal, um, customary royal happening. This would happen a lot when a royal figure would visit a town. They would request an unridden colt from someone who lives in that town to ride in the town. So this was an honor for those people that the Lord, this new king that God has sent, is riding in on my colt. And so... The second significant thing here is that Jesus is calling himself Lord. Generally speaking, a Lord is someone with authority or control, so think your landlord if you're not a homeowner. Um, to say that someone is Lord is to consider that person a master or a ruler of some kind. Um, and with this being Jesus, just follow me here, uh, Jesus proclaiming, uh, proclaiming Jesus as Lord has much greater implications than just somebody who has authority. If we track through the Bible, if we, saying Jesus is Lord became a way of declaring his deity, not just his control, not just his authority. At the end of, of uh, after his resurrection, uh, one of his disciples says, my Lord and my God. In Peter's, um, in Peter's letters, he, he says, let Israel be assured that God has made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Um, it's, it's linked all throughout the New Testament to his Messiahship, to his divinity, to him being God. And so Jesus declaring himself as Lord isn't just me saying that I'm coming to be in control. I'm coming to be your God, your Savior. I'm coming to be much more than just someone who tells you what to do. And so the disciples and the owner of the cult's outright obedience to Jesus is dependent on their view of his lordship. How do we respond to that? His lordship, he says, needs the cult. His lordship needs our obedience. He needs us to respond in obedience to his lordship, his place in heaven, his place of messiahship, his place of divinity in our lives. What is it that holds us back from having this same outright obedience? At the drop of a dime, when God puts something on your heart, on the drop of a dime, when God's calling you to something, what keeps us from doing that? And I think that we struggle with obedience because we struggle to make Jesus our Lord. The reason the disciples and the owners of the donkey were obedient because they were responding to their Lord, their authority, their master. And so I ask you this, who is the Lord of your life? We're responding to something. We're responding in obedience to something. And I think an easy way to look at our lives is to really assess who is our Lord is to examine ourselves and see what our priorities are. And not just like, ideally, this is what my priorities are going to be. You know, I'm going to read for 30 minutes a day. I'm going to spend this much time in prayer. I'm going to spend this much time with my family. Not going to be on my phone this amount of time. Like, that's ideally. But if you were to look back on the last week of your life and just take an assessment of what it looked like your priorities are, what were they? What were you actually thinking about the majority of your days? What are you spending your money on? How are you spending your free time? What are you watching, reading, consuming? See, we live in a culture that's all about me or you, not Dion, yourself. Do what's best for you, live your truth, do what makes you happy. 
Do we have a disordered Lord? What would it mean for you to reorder your lordship? Not to make yourself Lord, to you know, pursue the next dopamine, the, the next like, temporary happiness that we can find, the next enjoy, temporary enjoyment or release, not to build our own kingdom here, but for God to be our true aim. I think that we don't want to be obedient because we are our own Lord. We act as our own Lord. But the crazy thing is, as we start, and we, don't want to, and we don't want to give Jesus this lordship in our life because we think that he's not going to serve this me, Lord. We think that he's not going to want the things that I want for my life. He's not going to want me to be rich and wealthy. He's not going to want me to have free time to go um, do all the fun things that I want to do, play Madden, watch the Raiders. I said I wouldn't mention the Raiders. That's my only time today. Um, but we think that God's not going to want the best for us. We have this idea we have the best for us. But the crazy thing to me is that as we start to serve the Lord, as we start to respond and act in obedience to God, we find that he wants much, much better things for us than we could ever think up for ourselves. We go for what we want. Like I said, a release of dopamine, and what that is is just like the enjoyment that you get from, from, from pursuing something, a temporary pleasure, an escape from reality, a fulfillment of some idealized agenda, security in your resources, your time and your money, you name it. But if we live a life and act in obedience to God, we can see that God wants so much better things, way better things for us. Your salvation, for you to have life to the full, everlasting life, true life, TM. Love, joy, peace, patience. He wants you to be a patient person. He wants you to be able to exercise patience. He wants you to be a kind person to be a good person, to be a gentle person, to have a person who can exercise self-control. I could have thought about myself. Now, only Jesus is perfect, and we see that Jesus does act in perfect obedience and is acting in perfect obedience to his Father in moving towards what he's moving towards to his visit in Jerusalem. So only he can walk in sinless and perfect obedience. But as we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, as we respond in obedience and let the Holy Spirit do his work in us, be sanctified, to grow spiritually. The more we read God's word, the more we spend time with Jesus in silence and solitude, serve people, the more we grow in obedience and holiness as followers of the way of Jesus. So to experience all that God has in our lives and in this church, we must be obedient to what God is calling us to. As we declare him as our Lord and are obedient to what he is calling us into, naturally we begin to see him as even more. We, see, we find that he wants more good things for us, better things that we would ever want for ourselves. But we also, it naturally leads us into see him as this beautiful, amazing, majestic God. As more beautiful and worthy of praise. And so I think our obedience leads us to worship him. And that's what I see in the passage. Follow along with me. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. That's pretty crazy. So as they were going along, moving towards Jerusalem still, people were spreading their clothes on the road which is like rolling out the red carpet for famous people. 
And then when they got close to the path down the Mount of Olives, people start to praise God with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. They, they, they know that this is the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, who fed 5,000 people, who did all these crazy cool things. And they quote a psalm. They, they sing this psalm, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a psalm of ascent, which is what people would regularly sing while heading up to Jerusalem for their holy holidays. And they see God and it's like, here he is. We get to actually see the person who we're singing about. And then his Pharisees, or the Pharisees, not his Pharisees, told him to silence his disciples. And he replies with, if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. Meaning that this is as it should be. This is what is supposed to happen. This is nature. My presence, my name demands praise, demands worship. The natural order of things is praise demanded by Jesus' kingship or Jesus' majesty. And so the confession and praise of the people declare him as the king who comes sent by God. And so the next thing is his majesty demands our worship. Our next response to God as we act in obedience to him, we, we clearly get to see his majesty, his kingship, his lordship in our lives, and the natural response is worship. And now there's three ways the people in this passage respond in worship, in their worship. It says, as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Like I said, this is like, like, a, like rolling out the red carpet for a famous person. Some people might you know, think about a, a guy acting chivalrous for a lady, spreading his coat on the ground so she didn't step in a puddle. I mean, it's, but it's much, much more than this. They were reverential towards Jesus. This is an act of reverence. God, my majesty, Jesus, my majesty, let me roll out the carpet so that you don't have to walk on this unholy ground. Get your feet dirty. So they're reverential toward Jesus. Is our worship reverential? Is how you worship reverential? And I mean like right here, right here in, in church. Like when we're singing to God, when we're taking communion, when we're preparing our hearts to go to the Lord to, in the word, are we being reverential? Jesus said that the Father is seeking people who will learn to worship him in spirit and in truth. True worship is not about our favorite song. It's not confined to an emotional experience or like linked to these tingly feeling we get. We worship when our, in truth, when our minds, we worship reverentially when our minds are engaged and filled with the biblical understanding of who God is. To worship him the way he deserves to be worshipped, we must align our hearts with his and seek to obey him and act in reverence. The second thing they do is they're cheering, singing this song joyfully with a loud voice. And if we could apply that literally, are we worshiping God here on Sunday joyfully with a loud voice? Or, you know, I find myself just, yeah, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Maybe I need to check my crypto real fast. Like, are we, being, are we being joyful about who God is? Are we, like, excited about, like, we're worshiping the God who saves our souls, the God who saved us, the God who's working for our good, the God who's working for the good of the world? Are we joyful about that? They don't hold it back. If Jesus walked in here, would you just be like, oh, hey, and I keep going? Nope. At least I hope not. This would be like, like meeting your all-time favorite celebrity, um, thinking of someone not, who's, who's not a raider, uh, <laughs> Charles Woodson. If he walked in here, I would be ecstatic. Or Johnny Depp, if he walked in here, I would be ecstatic. If your favorite celebrity walked in here, like I would be kissing his feet probably, something, not literally, but I would be, I would be pumped, wouldn't be able to talk. This is what happened last time I met a famous person. At the, 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 you know, just kind of like, like, is that the response that you would have 
to Jesus if he walked in here? Like, would you be like without words, joyful and happy and like grinning to your ears? We must respond joyfully to God. We must be joyful in our worship. And the third thing about worshiping here is that the stones would cry out. In other words, like this right here, if they weren't doing it, because this is how things ought to be, this is reality. This is nature. And I kind of wish that he would have told them to be quiet because it would have been the first rock concert in history. <laughs> I didn't come up with that joke, but it's pretty good. <laughs> but I've been talking about here on Sundays, I've been talking about our worship and song and our responding to the word and to, in, in music, but our worship doesn't stop on Sundays. There's an old Latin saying that I learned in college, and you don't have to remember the Latin, I'm going to tell you the meaning of it, but it's catchy, so it's lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. And what this means is that the law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed is the law of what is lived. And so in other words, put it in English, real English, CSB version, how we interact with God directs our beliefs, which directs how we live. And so how we respond to God, how we pray, how we worship is going to direct what we believe about God, and that is going to affect how we live. When we walk here at a church, how we live. And a good way to think about it, and not literally, but when you leave here, do you leave here humming the words of, of worship, or do you leave here humming what I'm preaching? Like, how we worship, guys, is directing what you think about God, what you believe about him, and that is going to have a direct correlation to how you live outside of here. In other words, if we treat God with reverence in our worship and prayer life, we will believe God to be worthy of these things and display him as that in our living. If we are joyful and loud in our worship, we will live a life that shows that we live an awesome and cool and praiseworthy God. And if we treat this life of worship as reality, as this is how it is supposed to be, as God would have it, our lives would reflect that this is just the way it is. This is God. This is how God acted to the world, and this is how we are in relation to him. It's funny. I mean, I, in college, I had a friend and this was freshman year, so neither of us had a great understanding of worship. Um, but I remember we had to take this class called Principles of Christian Worship, and we learned cool worship theology and history and everything. And I remember him saying, yeah, worship's just really not my thing. But a lot of truth in that, because we, you know, we think that worship is confined to being able to sing or play an instrument. And so with that understanding, worship might not be your thing. You might not be a good singer. Now, my... my encouragement to you is to sing anyway. It's amazing. God wants to hear your voice and excited praise to him. But worship is your thing. If you're a human, you are created to worship this awesome, praiseworthy, reverence-worthy, enjoyment-worthy God. I read a book called You Are What You Love by an author named James K.A. Smith where he talks about how we kind of become kind of the same principle of Lex Orandi, Lex Vivendi, Lex Credendi. Say that three times fast. Uh, we kind of become what we devote our lives to. So in other, I'll read the quote. He said, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down, meaning from God to us. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. 
Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. So what do you love? We're all worshiping something, and the big argument in his book is that whether you're worshiping God or, or, or not, you are in turn then just worshiping something, putting something else in that place. Like I said, with the law that I just said, or, or the book that I'm, that I'm talking about, there is something we are built in this way that we are constantly worshiping, constantly praising, constantly being reverential, constantly enjoying something. What is in that place? And whatever is, that, is in that place is what's forming you. So what do you love? What are you reverential toward? What are you loud and excited and ecstatic about? That's what your life is going to become. Now, you might be a little surprised here. Even though they showed great obedience and great worship, which I deem is worthy to reflect in our lives towards Jesus, the people didn't end up with the outcome they expected. Our worship and our obedience is so important. Like, I would put it like, right under this next thing we're going to say, but rendered useless if they don't lead us into this last part. Read with me. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. So he continues to approach the city. He sees it and weeps for it. And if we go into a, a deeper um, Greek study of this word, wept for it, it like has implications of like he seriously, audibly, and loudly was crying for the city that he was looking at. He says if they knew that w- what would bring peace to them, but is hidden from them. He prophesies that Jerusalem will be overthrown and decimated because they didn't recognize that God visited them. And this really happened in about AD 70, if I'm not, yeah, if I'm correct, AD 70, Jerusalem was actually taken over and decimated, and the temple of God was destroyed, just as Jesus prophesied. And so if you didn't know, we've been in Luke for, you know, about, what, almost a year the main idea of, of Luke and really the Gospels is actually in this chapter, a couple of verses before, it's for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The whole thing about the Gospels is that God came to find us and to save us from being lost. And so the people, they're excited to see Jesus. They do all that Jesus asked them to do. They worship him greatly and even acknowledge that he is sent by God, but they miss the point. They think Jesus had come to take over kingship politically to take over Jerusalem, to save them from the rule of Rome. But they totally missed the point. They've held on to the prophecies that tell of a king and shaped him into this person who is not a god, a king, a messiah who came to save their souls, but simply a really good president. Someone who's really good at running the show. And because they didn't acknowledge that this is God who has come to seek and save their lost hearts, They reap destruction. And, like I said, it happens. So just as these first century disciples and Jews and Israelites crammed Jesus into their own view of who they thought God was, of who they they wanted God to be, 
and miss the point? We do the same exact thing. I just finished one of my, probably the, the top three books I've ever read. Um, it's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And basically, I don't want you to read ahead. The book is called Live No Lies, and his whole thing is that the devil's primary strategy to drive our soul and society into ruin is by putting deceptive ideas into our minds and into our hearts that play into disordered desires that are normalized into sinful society. And so basically, it's the three enemies are the devil, our flesh, and the world. And Jesus constantly warns us from the devil, from pursuing our flesh, and from conforming to the ways of the world. And he said in this book that the temptation for us in the West is less to atheism and more to a DIY faith that's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular sexual ethics, and radical individualism. Jesus wants us to know him. What he's saying is that we are more at risk to making up our own image of God, to making him work to what we deem to be true, what we deem to be good, and, and what he's all about than dis- disbelieving him altogether. We're at more risk to being deceived into a false god than actually being an atheist. So Jesus wants him to know him, people. Our response to Jesus' beauty, his lordship, his majesty, his loving grace towards us through obedience and through worship ought to lead us to know him fully. So Jesus didn't come to be your political scapegoat. Jesus didn't come to plant, to choose a a specific country or city to be his chosen people. Jesus came to establish a new kingdom made up of people who were once lost but are now found in him. So how have you missed the point? How have you taken Jesus and formed him and crammed him into this hole of who you want God to be? Maybe it is literally a political scapegoat. Maybe like that he's this representative of some human-made political ideal. Maybe he's a genie. Sometimes he just provides things for us. Maybe it's like a life coach. I have some problems. I, need, I have some things that I need, or I, I have some problems in life, so I need the way. Maybe it's literally how these guys got it wrong. You've convinced that our nation is God's nation. Jesus wants to be so much more to you. He is so much more. Now, he is all these things. He, is, he ought to rule our hearts and give us direction direction, and God does provide for you, and God should guide our, the way we interact with society, and I mean that politically, he should guide the way that we vote, but he's so much more than those things individually, and so much more of any of those things that I just said. So how do we experience all that God has for us? How do we respond to Jesus' greatness, his majesty, in a way that we're not missing out on who God really is and what he really has in store for us? And how do we let God be God for who he truly is and not something that you create him to be? When we do this, when we let God be who he really is, we experience something greater than any peace, any happiness, any release, any security that we can ever look for here. We experience being a part of God's kingdom. And so how do we do this? And it's simple. We practice spiritual disciplines. 
We are obedient in his leading us through his word and through spending time with him in prayer and solitude. Through fasting. When's the last time you fasted? When's the last time I fasted? When's the last time you confessed your sins to another person? Now, we are called to confess to God. God is the person we are, are, are responsible to answering for answering to. But it is also very clear in Scripture that we are, are supposed to confess our sins to one another, keep our sin in the light. Because if, it keeps, if, if mold is in the dark, it's going to keep growing. If you expose mold to light, if you expose sin to light, that is the you know, tried and true way of getting rid of the sin in your life. And one spiritual discipline that we practice weekly together here is communion. And so here in a little bit, if you didn't already grab a, a cup of, of juice with the cracker on top of it, I would encourage you to go grab it. Um, but every Sunday we practice communion. And in communion, this is us intentionally looking back to remember what God did for us and remember who God is. You see, we were disobedient to our own ways. We were our own Lord. We acted as our own Lord. We were non-reverential, non-joyful to him. We weren't, we weren't in, in, in the mindset of God is reality, our response to God is reality. And so what we reap for ourselves, what we, we ourselves earn for ourselves, is death, is destruction. Just as the, Jeru- the people in Jerusalem reaped upon themselves because they didn't recognize the time that God visited them. In this passage, it's called the triumphal entry because Jesus is moving towards his death for us, for you and me. And so as we take communion, look back and remember who God is. And my prayer for you is that as we take communion, as we commune with God and with each other, that it propel you to live a life of obedience, to propel you to live a life of in joyful, yeah, joyful worship to God. Worship to God that is, this is the proclamation of what reality is and ultimately to know him to know him deeper every day. I love you guys. Thank you for approaching the word with me. I'm going to pray for you. Father God, I just thank you so much for today and the opportunity to worship you, to be a part of your plan, to be your people. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Um, we thank you for coming to us and modeling for us and showing us your greatness and how we ought to respond to your greatness, Father. Um, We love you and we pray that you uh, move in our hearts um, as we worship you and form us from the top down. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.